Chapter Twenty Four of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Francis Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Four on the Continent. In a letter already quoted to Miss Heath of date East Riding, England, June first, eighteen fifty five there occurs the first intimation of an intention on the part of miss dix to prolong her stay in europe and visit the continent she is as she says very feeble but not helpless and never cheerless and goes on it is now beginning to dawn on me that i may not go to the united states this autumn i do not see any great use in getting back just as the cold weather advances unless there is a call to labor if so i dare say the strength would come for the daily task daily the manna fell from heaven accordingly as the summer advanced a cordial invitation from the rathbones then in switzerland to join them as their guest and see the alps brought matters to a final decision with her naturally anxious to do everything for her health and comfort her kindly friends had strongly urged upon her that before setting out from england she should secure the services of a capable woman as maid a proposition which called for mystics the following characteristic and rather amusing reply quote, you desire that i should have someone with me a maid to save me fatigue and prevent my feeling desolate when alone a maid would only be in the way with nothing to do and for feeling desolate I never felt desolate in my life, and I have been much alone in both populous and thinly settled countries. You are quite right in saying I cannot rest in England any more than in America, now that I know how much suffering calls aloud for relief. I must turn a deaf ear to the cries, and go beyond the reach of the sound of the many afflicted ones, till I have gathered up force to renew. Should it please God that I work longer, the work whereunto I am called. To the reader of this biography, already familiar with Miss Dix's habits of travel on her lonely and hazardous journeys through the former comparative wildernesses of the southern and western regions of the United States, journeys on which she always carried with her a private outfit of hammers, screws, wrenches, leather straps, and coils of rope, to be ready for repairs in event of accident it will easily be conceived that the proposed relation however kindly suggested between miss dix and a maid would hardly have proved a happy one for either party miss dix would have been distressed for fear of the maid feeling desolate while the maid herself would have been frightened out of all propriety at having to stand by and see the thousand and one things her mistress could do for herself beyond anything it had ever entered her humble imagination to conceive the swiss visit proved to miss dix 
one of the most delightful holiday seasons of her active and crowded life. In after years, she never tired of talking about Chamonix and the Bernese Oberland. Once beyond the reach of the sound of the many afflicted ones, she seems to have freely yielded herself to the spell of the magnificent spectacle daily before her eyes. Easily rising, as was constitutional with her, to a state of high spiritual exaltation, she speaks of the snow-clad peaks, mantled with their regal robes of pasture and forest, as a sublime cathedral anthem to God. Along with this, her vivid interest in all natural phenomena, next to compassion the strongest impulse of her nature, here found a fruitful field of exercise. The glaciers, the arctic flora, the geologic forces and such active operation, now supplied her with data at least, which in all later years made her an eager and appreciative reader of the studies on these subjects of men like Agassiz, Lyell, and Tyndall. Even in the midst of the distraction and suffering of the later Civil War, she writes in 1862, quote, your thoughtful care for my gratification in planning that pleasant journey to the continent has enriched my life for all time. I never find the glorious views of the Alps fade from my mind's eye. A thousand incidents recall and repeat the memory of those grand snow peaks piercing the skies. End quote. Moreover, the rest and recreation of spirit thus afforded had acted so beneficially on her physical condition that she at last felt justified in carrying out the plan she had for some time been revolving of an extended tour of observation of the hospitals, insane asylums, and prisons of Europe, including those of Turkey with possibly the accomplishment of the yearned-for visit to Palestine. Accompanying the Rathbones on their way back to England, Miss Dix shortly after parted with them and set out for France. She was now once more alone, and as she liked to be when engrossed in her work, left to her sole individual resources. How meager in one important respect where these resources could not but awaken a half-compassionate, half-amused smile in her devoted friends. Apart from English, she spoke no other language but a little, very rudimentary French. And here she was proposing to face undaunted the linguistic problems of Italy, Greece, Turkey, Sclavonia, Russia, Germany, Norway, and Holland, and that, too, before the days of the royal road to philological knowledge later opened by the introduction of polyglot waiters into every inn. Not unlikely, however, in her fondness for heroic stories and her keen sense of their pith and marrow, she had called to mind the legendary account of the mother of St. Thomas a Becket. How? deserted in Syria by her husband, 
an English crusader, the poor yearning wife had set out from the east, traversed all Europe on foot, and finally rejoined him in his own land on the strength of the two sole words of his language she knew, a Becket and England. Surely, if a lone Muslim woman was equal to such a feat, why not an American woman, mistress of a little rudimentary French, hope to penetrate the secrets of Greek insane asylums, Turkish bagnios, and Russian prisons? Fortunately, there remain a number of letters by the help of which Miss Dix's footsteps can be traced through a part of the long journeyings to which she was now to devote nearly a full year. Those from France are few and unimportant, but as she makes her way to Italy, Greece, and onward to Constantinople, they become more frequent and more eventful. To Mrs. Rathbone, quote, Mattray, near Tours, September 3, 1855. Arrived at Rhone at 4 p.m., visited hospitals for aged men and women, and establishment for juvenile offenders at Quilly, five miles out of Rouen, at saint Jan another. Then Paris, then Orleans, then Blois, then Tours, then Mattray. Go next to Nantes, return to Paris. End quote. To Mrs. Rathbone, quote, Paris, September, 1855. Yesterday, and only till then, I became possessor of a full police and magisterial sanction under seal, for which nine official parties were to be reached for entering all the prisons and hospitals of Paris without exception. To Mrs. Samuel Torrey, Boston, U.S. Quote, Paris, November, 1855. I am still entirely occupied in seeing the charitable institutions of this city and environs, which I hope to have done by two weeks more. The very short days and the very dull weather unite to make this slow work. I am obliged to take much rest. It seems to have become absolutely the condition on which I do anything in the pursuit of my vocation. The vast multiplication of all sorts of hospitals for all sorts of complaints and infirmities, and for all ages, tells of the different condition of family life from that we are used to observe. I quite comprehend the turbulence and crimes of revolutionary periods, especially those movements in which women have been conspicuous for trampling on all laws human and divine. To Dr. Batoff, Trenton, U.S. Quote, Paris, December 3, 1855. I should say that all the charitable institutions of Paris, liberally supported as they are by government, possess in a large measure great excellencies, 
but two radical universal defects, at least, strike the most casual observer. The want of ventilation is the chiefest ill, and quite explains the amazing mortality, apart from the well-known experimental methods of treatment by the interns, resident students. In all these establishments, associated with other employees, are found sisters of charity and nuns of various orders. Some of them are very self-denying, not many. They are never overtasked, except possibly in some period of serious epidemic. As for the priests, they should for the most part occupy places in houses of correctional discipline and enlightening cultivation. It was not until the second week in January that Miss Dix, after completing her examination of the charitable institutions of France, was ready to leave for Italy. The first letter from there bears date, Genoa, March 3, 1856, to Mrs. Rathbone. Quote, Genoa, Italy, March 3, 1856. This morning I spent in the hospital for the insane, and find much to commend, with some things to disapprove. But after seeing that at Rome, I regard all other institutions in this country with comparative favor. I left Naples, Rome, and Florence with regret that I could not have had leisure to observe the works of art, ancient and modern, which have great attraction but I saw a good deal, considering the claims of hospitals and the short time I spent in each place. I get daily news from Constantinople, which moves my sympathy for the poor insane of Turkey. Innovations in usages are now fast going on there, so we may hope the hospitals will share in the advance of civilization. End quote. Three days later, the above letter is followed by one to Mrs. Samuel Torrey, in which a backward glance is thrown by Miss Dix over the objects that had engaged her since her arrival in Italy. To Mrs. Samuel Torrey. Quote, Genoa, March 6th, 1856. I left Marseille so suddenly for Italy the second week of January, and since have been so wholly and fatiguingly occupied that all letter-writing is very seriously interfered with. I was but thirteen days in Naples. The bad weather which I had experienced during all the autumn in France followed me there. I found at Rome a hospital for the insane so very bad that I set about the difficult work of reform at once and during the fourteen days I was there, so far succeeded as to have papal promises and cardinal assurances, etc., of immediate action in remedying abuses and supplying deficiencies. I have promised some of the Roman citizens and some of the physicians to return there in two months if no advance is made in the object of my late efforts so that coming to the United States in June is, I fear, quite set aside. I also wish a new hospital in Florence. 
This has been contemplated by the commune of Florence, but the onerous taxation consequent on the Austrian invasion has impoverished the city. You need not be much surprised to hear of me in Constantinople. I have for a long time felt distressed at the horrid stories of suffering in the prisons and hospitals there, and yet, till quite lately, I have not had a thought of personally undertaking anything in that quarter. But recent political and social changes, joined with information had from Sir Charles and Lady Hamilton, recently returned from the East, have led me to believe that something might be commenced in the way of reform. My work seems to me to be indicated by providence, and I cannot conscientiously turn away from attempting, as far as possible, to alleviate miseries wherever I find them. Only a day after the dispatch of the preceding letter, Miss Dix writes as follows from Turin to Mrs. Rathbone quote, Turin, Italy, March 7, 1856. I left Genoa at 11 a.m. and arrived safely after a very pleasant journey. It is just as easy traveling alone here as it is in England or America. I now regret I had not sooner tried it. End quote. Next day, quote, The general hospitals here, as in Italy at large, are very good, but that in this city for the insane is so bad that I feel quite heartsick. I drove to the hospital in the country, very bad. Then I drove to the hospital within the walls, made an appointment with the chief doctor for tomorrow, and with the Protestant minister shall try to represent the importance of entire change for the patients. I do not think it will do much good, but it is my duty to try. I shall appeal in writing to the king, leave for Milan tomorrow. Later, quote, my plans appear to be about as stable as spring breezes. After the meeting touching hospital affairs yesterday, and which only served to establish my opinion of the melancholy defects of the institutions in question, I was invited to visit today the five prisons of Turin, and to join in my application for hospital reform some remonstrance against the pernicious arrangement of these establishments. I have not to convince officers of government alone, but to make stand against the priests who interfere with everything that is done or to be done. I never felt anything more difficult than this work in Italy. In Rome, I found government and the priestly office united, and the very shame of foreign and Protestant interposition quickened them to action or promise rather than humanity. But in Florence, Genoa, and here, it is a fact that changes are coming over the old rule, and one must wait a little where so much is doing and to be done. I will now make no more plans for going or returning, 
so many things constantly occur to change or hinder my intentions. End quote. From the above letters, it is evident that in Rome itself, Miss Dix felt she had struck upon a worse condition of things in the treatment of the insane than anywhere else in Italy. Even in Naples, and under the rule of King Bamba, she had found an asylum worthy of warm tributes of praise. But here, under the very shadow of the Vatican, the condition of the lunatic was so hopelessly wretched as to convince her that this must be her field of immediate energetic action. As it will be necessary to enlarge to some extent on the work she accomplished in Rome, it is a satisfaction to find a letter expressive of her personal feeling on the subject addressed by her from Florence to her friends Dr. and Mrs. Butolf of Trenton, New Jersey. To Dr. and Mrs. Butolf, quote, Florence, Italy, 1856. In Naples, I did nothing for hospitals. Indeed, strange as it is, I found a better institution there for the insane than has been founded in all southern and central Italy. In Rome, things were quite different. 6,000 priests, 300 monks, 3,000 nuns, and a spiritual sovereignty joined with the temporal powers had not assured for the miserable insane a decent, much less an intelligent care. I could not bear to know this, see this, and do nothing. An appeal to the Pope, which involved care, patience, time, and negotiation, has secured promises. Land is bought. At least I had the assurances of the officers of state that it was that day purchased, and plans are prepared. Now, if these are not carried out, I do not return to the United States, but go to Rome and stay till they do that which is needed. Since coming to Florence five days ago, I find a bad hospital here and mountains of difficulty in the way of remedy for serious ills. I have the idea of removing these mountains and seeing if Protestant energy cannot work what Catholic powers fail to undertake. It will readily be seen that it was a work of a very delicate nature which Miss Dix now found on her hands. She was a foreigner, a Protestant, and a woman. And yet, with all these serious disabilities, she now saw it in the light of inexorable duty to seek an audience of the supreme pontiff of the great Roman Catholic Church, and in a way not to offend his sensibilities, but graciously to win his favor, clearly to apprise the anointed vicar of Christ on earth, that in the light of modern knowledge and humanity, the insane asylum of the Holy City was a disgrace and a scandal. The audience must be, moreover, no mere ceremonial interview, with graceful interchange of bows and genuflections, but a direct encounter between the two grand rival infallibilities confronting one another in the nineteenth century. The infallibility of Rome— and the infallibility of enlightened reason. 
that in the realm of the new revelation of the humane and rational treatment of insanity, which had now broken upon the world, she stood a divinely commissioned champion of moral reason, and was backed by an authority of science so irresistible that whatsoever it should bind on earth should be bound in heaven. Of all this she felt no more question than Pope Hildebrand, when at Canosa he confronted the imperial power of Henry the Fourth with the sacerdotal power embodied in his own personality. No such thing was there, no such thing could there be, as an infallibly good, bad insane asylum. At the same time, there could be no employment here of Hildebrand tactics. The weapons of the modern warfare of humane science are not of the flesh, but of the spirit. They demand no trophies in the shape of humiliated defiers of their dogmas. But they do demand, with more than papal authority, absolute and unconditional submission, and that their yea shall be yea, and their nay nay, in secula seculorum. So now, if a new triumph for the outcast and miserable was to be won, it could come alone of convincing the judgment and touching the heart of Pope Pius the Ninth. As Miss Dix herself wrote, the appeal to the Pope involved care, patience, time, and negotiation. Fortunately, early in her attempts had she secured the powerful assistance of Cardinal Antonelli, who entered warmly into her scheme, and whose clear-cut intellectual force made a lifelong impression on her. Alike as an astute diplomatist, and as almost the last survival of the old regime of cardinals who contrived to unite the freedom from earthly ties of the celibate state with a large family of children, perhaps too openly permitted to avow their parentage on the Corso, Cardinal Antonelli has come in for his full share of censorious criticism. But it is a curious fact that, to the end of her days, Miss Dix, whose standard in such matters was inexorable, would never in her presence suffer a word to be said against him. He was the most enlightened, humane, and merciful man, she insisted, she had found in Rome a man who spared himself no pains to urge the plea of the wronged and suffering. Unfortunately, no letter or paper of any kind remains that might serve to recall the particulars of the interview Miss Dix ultimately obtained with Pope Pius the Ninth. That it was one which, from the circumstances of the case, the supreme spiritual authority of the pontiff, the beautiful benignity of the man, and the far-reaching consequences it might entail, must have called out her full resources, there can be no question. All that can be gathered today to illustrate the scene must come from the memories of certain of Miss Dix's still surviving friends, to whom, in those rare hours of intimacy in which she suffered her habitual reticence about herself to be broken through, she told the story. 
She found Pius the Ninth benignity itself. Happily at home in England, nothing of the power of the plea was lost by having to pass through the medium of an interpreter. He listened with fixed attention to her recital and was painfully shocked at its details, promising her immediately to make a personal examination and appointing a second audience at a later date. A day or two after, he drove unannounced to the insane asylum and, taking its officials unawares, inspected the wards himself. Then, at the second audience granted Miss Dix, he freely acknowledged his distress at the condition of things he had found, and warmly thanked her, a woman and a Protestant, for crossing the seas to call to his attention as chief shepherd of the sheep, these cruelly entreated members of his flock. And did you really kneel down and kiss his hand? were wont to ask some of her ultra-Protestant and Quaker hearers. Most certainly I did, she would reply. I revered him for his saintliness. And yet impressive, and perhaps entirely unexpected, as this scene and its sequel may appear to the majority of Protestant readers, their naive surprise is simply a measure of their ignorance of the grand tradition of the Roman Catholic Church. Through all the centuries of Christendom, has that marvelous religious organization known how to interpret, utilize, and open a career to exceptional women, after a fashion that Protestantism has never yet mastered. That, for example, the Babylonian captivity of the church was brought to an end, and the restoration of the papacy from Avignon to the eternal city finally effected, by the clear insight and passionate pleading of a woman, Catherine of Siena, is something which the Roman Catholic Church has never hesitated proudly and gratefully to avow. Such rare and exceptional combinations in women of mystical fervor of faith with commanding practical ability, it has not only known how to avail itself of forefounding new and immensely effective religious orders in all lands, but after death it has canonized the representatives of them as saints, thus dowering them with a supernatural power over generations to come greater even than the natural power they exerted over their own generations. In point of fact, a woman of precisely the same stamp was standing there before Pius the Ninth in the Vatican, February 1856. Had she been born in 1515 in still medieval and imaginatively religious Spain, instead of in 1802 in rational, practical New England, then, just as inevitably as in the case of St. Teresa, she would have founded great conventual establishments in a Malaga, Valladolid, Toledo, Segovia, and Salamanca, as she in reality did great asylums for the insane in a Baltimore, Raleigh, Columbia, Nashville, Lexington, or Halifax. 
Equally, too, would she have ruled them as abbess. Precisely the same characteristics marked her, the same absolute religious consecration, the same heroic readiness to trample underfoot the pains of illness, loneliness, and opposition, the same intellectual grasp of what a great reformatory work demanded. St. Teresa was nourished from childhood on the miraculous legends of the saints, and breathed all her life an atmosphere of supernatural marvel and portent. Dorothea Lynde Dix was nourished on the devout humanitarianism of Channing, and breathed the quickening air of a time just awakening to enthusiastic faith in the amelioration of human misery through the beneficent discoveries of science. And so, very curious historically, is it to notice, in the parallel of these two kindred founders of great institutions, the change of view time works in religious faiths. The acute pain in the side, which through life clung to each of them, and which came in each instance of pulmonary weakness, was in the first case believed to have been a stroke delivered by an angel who pierced her with a lance tipped with fire, and in the other, though equally tipped with fire, devoutly accepted as the ordained action of those immutable physical laws of God, through which he works out the eternal counsel of his will. Very great, then, was the mistake made by a woman of such genius as George Eliot, when, in her attempt in Middlemarch to portray the inevitable fate in this shallow material nineteenth century of a modern St. Teresa, she selected as the type of such a nature a sentimental woman like Dorothea Brooke, and as the pitiful outcome of all such soaring aspirations evolved the story of her marriage with the acrid bookworm Casabon whom she had fancifully mistaken for a profound scholar and a man of sublime aims. Dorothea, comments George Eliot, with all her eagerness to know the truth of life, retained very childlike ideas about marriage. She felt sure that she would have accepted the judicious hooker, if she had been born in time to save him from that wretched mistake he made in matrimony, or John Milton when his blindness had come on, or any of the other great men whose odd habits it would have been glorious piety to endure. Now, retrospective visions on the part of gentle and aspiring young ladies of the blissful changes that would have been wrought in the fate of departed men of genius had they themselves only happened to be mrs richard hooker or mrs john milton are no doubt very charming and had they come in time would have been spared much domestic misery still such romantic visions are at the last remove from any kind of proof that the young ladies in question have the attributes of a Saint Teresa. A new Teresa, says George Eliot, will hardly have the opportunity of reforming a conventual life. 
any more than a new Antigone will spend her heroic piety in daring all for the sake of a brother's burial. The medium in which their ardent deeds took shape is forever gone. No, the medium is forever here, say the real St. Teresa's. In one age, it assumes one shape, in another, another. He that has eyes to see, let him see. To return, however, to the audiences granted mystics in the Vatican by Pope Pius IX. The first outcome of them was most assuring to her. And yet, though confident the Pope would remain faithful to his own pledges, and relying on Cardinal Antonelli as a tower of strength, she still read with perfect clearness the character of the ecclesiastical bureaucracy of Rome, and understood how many an interest of ignorance, superstition, and private greed would lift its outcry against every shape of innovation. She therefore stood ready, as has already been seen in previously quoted letters from Florence and Genoa, to return at any moment to Rome and renew the battle. It was, however, a great relief before long to learn that an especial physician had been sent to France to study the methods of the best asylums there, and that a tract of land near the Villa Borghese had actually been purchased, as well as, still later on, to be assured by an American friend in Rome, Dr. Joseph Parrish, that preliminary steps had already been taken by the Pope toward the erection of a new asylum on the most approved plan. An account of a visit to this subsequently erected asylum, written mystics many years later by Mrs. J. P. Bancroft, is here subjoined. Quote, Naples, February 7th, 1876. My dear Miss Dix, I have always remembered with lively interest the accounts you gave us, many years ago, of the efforts you made in Rome to reach the insane and improve their condition. This recollection gave me more than ordinary desire, while in Rome, to see the asylum which was erected by Pius the Ninth and which perhaps your efforts may have originated in his mind. So I devoted a day to a visit at the institution. I found ready access to the principal medical director and joined him in a circuit of all parts of the houses and grounds. It is a department of the General Hospital, San Spirito, and has gone under the control of the Italian government since the occupation. There are 650 patients, made up of paying patients and dependents, the latter being far the larger number. From what I saw, I believe the management is inspired by the spirit of the times. But in the realization of results, two obstacles are in the way, poverty and lack of the best experience. While these exist, we can never expect the conditions found in English and American asylums. I think their ideas and demands as to personal tidiness and cleanliness are much more lax than among the English-speaking peoples. 
I was not so much surprised in the manner in which I saw them take their meals when I observed along the streets the poorer class eating in their homes. Italy is fearfully poor, and the people are taxed to the last extreme. And with this and all the expense of the military system, she feels obliged to keep up. I cannot see how very great improvement can be looked for at present in the management of their public institutions of charity. There can be no question that a great revolution in the care and treatment of the insane was effected by the organization of this present institution in comparison with former methods. The superintendent manifests great interest in his work, and I could not but regret his lack of means to make the house as pleasant and inviting as money might make it. Very cordially your friend, J. P. Bancroft. End, quote. End of chapter 24